In this episode, I'm once again joined by David Curtis, a Lama in the Shangpa Kagyu sect of Tibetan Buddhism and founder of the Tibetan Language Institute. In this second interview, we pick up David's story as he emerged from three years of closed retreat, graduating as a qualified Lama, and see his return to America to teach both the Tibetan language and the Buddhist religion. David also recounts many unexpected meetings and powerful mystical experiences with Buddhist masters, including Mindrolling Jetsun Kandra Rinpoche, Anam Tupton Rinpoche, Tinle Norbu Rinpoche, Lama Tarchin, and more. So without further ado, Lama David Curtis. Lama David Curtis, welcome back to the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me, Steve. In our last episode, we covered much of your life story and it's with its many twists and turns and culminated really in discussing your three-year retreat that you undertook in France under the spiritual direction of Kali Rinpoche. And in particular, uh, your encounter with the six yogas of Naropa. Now, I'm curious, from what I understand, completion of your three-year retreat granted you the title of Lama. And you were also named much later an Acharya or Lupon, which means master teacher by Gochen Tulka Rinpoche and Nanjat Kempo Ngawangelek. I'm wondering, can you say something a bit about these titles? First of all, what did it mean to you to be called a Lama uh, coming out of that three-year retreat? Well, I, I had and continue to have uh, a bit of unease around the, around the title. Uh, it was such a profound experience um, that I think uh, just about everyone feels quite humbled by it coming out. You know, it's just like, like an encounter <laughs> with the infinite and, uh, and then all of a sudden it's all over. So I imagine I've been, I've been working a little bit with a book um, called The Sacred Compass, Navigating Life Through the Bardo Teachings. So it's very much a Bardo experience. You were in there uh, incubating um, and then you then you're just burst out into the world again and um, it's qu it's quite an adjustment um, but um, it feel, felt like a great blessing and a privilege to me to have experienced that rather than I'm entitled and now I'm uh, somebody special with this title. Did everyone who completed the three-year retreat become a Lama? understand in different sects, there are different uh, requirements and different routes, I suppose, by which one becomes a Lama. Was completion of the three-year retreat sufficient qualification in those days, or were there additional levels of scrutiny? I think in our school, that's the, that's the understanding. So it's a little bit like, I'm not real familiar with these systems, but a little bit like the Christian seminary. You know, one graduates from the seminary and then there are priests or minister and then what they do with that, then, um, you know, the, so some people decide to begin teaching, you know, other people go back to um, kind of the ordinary life they had before. Um, and people do all kinds of different things uh, with that. And so what in your school does the title Lama mean in that sense? If you meet a Lama from your school and they're using the name, the word Lama, it's part of their designation, which you do. What does that imply or communicate? I think generally that implies that the person is qualified to guide and instruct uh, others that are interested in the spiritual life. Based on their experience 
of the three-year retreat. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's no an additional, say, uh, training or suggestion in terms of how to guide. One is just trusted that one's own experience from the three-year retreat is enough, sufficient to guide from that point on. Right. It's somewhat similar when people get uh, graduate degrees. Then, um, like if someone gets a PhD, for instance, then they can get a job teaching in that field and never have taken a class on like how to teach. Uh, right. Whatever. <laughs> so you don't strike me as the sort of person who would have necessarily stopped at the end of that three-year retreat. So I've arrived now. That's it. No more exploring. No more uh, adventuring. Um, so I'm curious, what did you go on to investigate? How did things emerge from there? I know in 1993, you began teaching Tibetan language in Los Angeles. And in 1996, you established the Tibetan Language Institute and became, at that point, I think, engaging in the activity that many people will know you for, which is teaching many, many, uh, many, many people, classical Tibetan in particular, in the US. So I'm curious what happened after that three retreat, both in terms of your own exploration and also in terms of biography. So I re uh, became acquainted uh, with Deanna. Uh, so we hadn't seen each other in three years and three months. Um, and so that was one thing that happened that was significant. And then we decided just to stay right at the Dharma Center there in Burgundy and see if we could lend a hand in any way whatsoever. And, um, and so we did that. And then a couple of um, serendipitous things happened. One very significant thing in my life was that um, a Tibetan doctor, a Bhutanese doctor, um, who had trained, I think it was 18 years in Tibet, uh, came and he was going to teach a one-month intensive in Tibetan medicine at the center. And they had built a new building that was the educational facility. So they had the rather grand and beautiful temple that was built um, before we went into re retreat. And then um, this other building was completed and they were starting classes of different types there. So expanding uh, what they offered at the center. <clears throat> and the, um, the doctor gave a, um, an evening kind of intro public lecture about Tibetan medicine. And I went to that as I went to all the events that happened. And I think I helped lead the daily rituals a little bit in the morning from time to time. And then part took in the rituals, the ritual life there um, throughout the day. Um, and um, since we were from Montana, it was a little more difficult for us just to pop over and go home like the, our friends that lived in France. So we just stayed right there. But this talk that the doctor gave um, was astounding. And I was just very, very moved by it. And um, we had done um, regularly, not every day, but regularly the Medicine Buddha ritual. And so I knew a little bit how to do that um, and felt some connection there. But this talk that he gave was really astounding. And one of the things that um, I was so moved by was the, the harmony between the teachings of the tantric practices, like the six yogas that we were doing, and what he was explaining about Tibetan medicine. I was just powerfully moved by that and really, really impressed. And so I went to the abbot and said, I'd like to take that month-long um, medical course. 
And then he laughed at me and said, um, well, that's for doctors and medical people, like Western medical people to introduce them to this alternate system. And why are you interested in it? And besides, we just gave you the three year, three month retreat, you know, and now you want more, you know, the, you should be out like helping people. And, um, and so I explained to him a little bit about how moved I was and why I was interested. And then he said, okay. And so I took that month long intensive and I wound up becoming something like the TA, the teaching assistant for the doctor. And he discovered after a couple of days because he would begin each day study and teaching with doing the medicine Buddha ritual. And then he obviously, he noticed right away that I was doing it right with him and everyone else was just kind of audience and, and amazed, you know, by the bell and everything. And, and, um, and so he kind of turned that part over to me. And I think he got to sleep a bit longer in the morning then. And, but then um, I became so interested that um, I started developing a trilingual glossary of Tibetan medicine, French and English and Tibetan. And uh, with the help of my friends, uh, Diana and another uh, friend of mine who knew French better than I did. And, um, and I, I guess you could say, I just got quite into it and really moved by it. And, and so that, that kind of changed uh, my worldview a little bit. Um, and so then the other thing, the, um, after, after some time there, I think it was, I seem to remember that it was April and we got out of the retreat in January and there's a big formal ceremony. Oh, and then a really beautiful teacher had come each year while we were in retreat is, he was a great Dzogchen master by the name of Nyoshu Kempo, Jamyang Dorje. And he gave us some empowerments uh, and teachings that were just beautiful and inspiring. Every time he came, it was an amazing experience. He had come through the inauguration of the temple um, that had been a nine year project at the center. And I was assigned to be his driver. So I got to know him a little bit and his wife spoke very good English and I didn't speak any Tibetan, well, just a tiny bit of Tibetan. Um, but so I was very moved by him. And so the option was offered to us when we completed the three-year retreat for those of you who want. So he worked this out with the abbot and the center. And he said, for those of you who want, after you finish the three-year retreat, we'll have the going out ceremony and the greeting of the family and friends and all that. And then those of you who want can go back in to retreat and stay right in your homes and do a month long uh, other retreat. And some people were like out of there, you know, <laughs> uh, and, um, and, and Deanna and I both decided we wanted to do that. So, um, it was a Dorje Sempa uh, practice, a Mingling Dorje Sempa, I believe is what we did. And so that was remarkable. So, so that was a little bit I'd forgotten about of like in this um, manner of answer, answering your question about continuing to study and inquire. And then a third thing happened uh, in that first, I think we stayed at the center nine months before we came back to America after the retreat. And another thing that happened was one of Deanna's friends and she'd been in France back and forth, uh, wound up, you know, by the time we left, she had lived in France for eight years um, before the Dharma and, and then after, of course. Um, but her friend had a, 
had a house in an apartment in Nice. And she said she was going to be away for a while. And would we like to come and stay in her apartment for a few weeks in Nice? And so we thought, oh, this is great. You know, like, like have our little couple uh, vacation in Nice in the spring, you know, in the south of France, how nice. And so we were thinking very much of uh, that, like, like a holiday, a, like, you know, little vacation for us. And um, we were picked up at the station by a friend of the friend who had the apartment. And um, almost the first thing she said to us was, there's a great Rinpoche coming to town tomorrow. So I'm going to come and pick you up at 8 a.m. and take you to this teaching. And we were like, not enthused at that idea, really, you know, we, so the, the holiday, uh, the very first morning at 8 a.m., you know, we're, uh, uh, we're not going to be on holiday in Nice. And so the woman came and picked us up and she had a, um, I remember it was a BMW um, hot car and she could really, really drive it. And we drove up into the mountains from Nice up the, you know, there's a very windy, twisty road going up into the mountains from Nice. And then as you go up in the springtime, it's like Montana, the, you know, so it's kind of springtime down at the bottom uh, at the coast. And then as you go up, it became more and more winter again. And we just lived pretty much four winters with no heat at all. I think it was maybe three and a half winters. And so we were welcoming the idea of being in the south of France in the sun. And then here we were going. Um, with this woman that we didn't know who was like very determined about this and like driving like a professional race car driver up that corniche, you know, twisting, twisting, twisting. And I'm a person that with that one exception, I've never been car sick, plane sick, boat sick. You know, I, I, uh, I guess I have a pretty good stomach and I, I just don't get uh, sick like that. But, but I was getting sicker as we went up the road. For one thing, when you sit for a long time in retreat, and the longest journey you make is walking 20, 21 steps. Um, there's something that happens with their, the body and you know, everything gets like settled down, settled down, settled down. And then to do that, um, it was just really intense and unpleasant. And then we're getting colder and it's going higher. And then we're going to some Rinpoche and I don't know who they are or you know anything about them. And, well, and I was told it was Khandro Rinpoche and that she was going to be giving a, a Vajra Yogini retreat and empowerment and teaching up there. And we just had like, I don't know, but, you know, uh, many dozens of empowerments, you know, in the time that we've been there. And so, so I had quite a negative um, attitude about this. And then when we got there, we parked in a field and we had sandals on. And I, if I, I think we did. I think it's but, but not much in the way of winter clothing. And, um, and so then we're walking in the snow. So I'm sick, I'm annoyed, you know, where it's back in winter. And, uh, and I love winter normally, but anyway, I was just completely annoyed. And then I was sick at my stomach. And then when we got to the tent, oh, the woman said, so this was then the teachings taking place in a tent up in the mountains. And so the, so the woman that drove us, a lovely person, said, uh, I'll park the car. You guys just go in. And we had our robes on, you know. And, and when we got to the admissions, the, the woman uh, was, um, didn't want to let us in because we didn't have money. We'd just been in the retreat for three years. We didn't have any money. And it was this much money. And she was like a warden, you know, or the guardian at the gate. And so like, no way. You can't come in. And so I said, great. You know, we'd like 
got up early, you know, driven all the way up here, gotten sick, it's cold, and now this annoying person won't let us in. And so then I was even more irritated, and I wasn't saying anything. And then finally, our friend and driver um, showed up, and then she paid for us, and they let us in. And I stepped into the tent, and I was perpendicular. And so then Contra Rinpoche was on the throne at the far end of the tent, and we entered like at a 90-degree angle. And I turned and looked at her in the shrine, and something just very powerful just overcame me and hit me and um, um, it was as if she was Vajrayogini right there so so my attitude uh, I get moved talking about this um, it just completely changed you know it was like whoa so I just you know did the classic 180 from being completely annoyed to just just uh, awestruck and and uh, overcome and so um, then um, we decided that um, our vacation was going to be in significant part following Kondo Rinpoche. To all, she was teaching all along the south coast of France there um, in, in Nice. And I can't remember the names of those towns right now. Um, but we followed her and then developed a relationship, personal relationship with her. And um, she speaks very good English. and. Uh, she had a significant impact um, on both of us. And then there's more to that story that happens when we re-met her later on in LA. She was one of the, so I had this title Lama, but I had no idea, no plans uh, about teaching or starting some kind of Dharma center or anything like that at all. Um, but um, she had other ideas. <laughs> well, let's uh, continue that thread. Although I, I do have a question, can you describe a little bit what you, in a bit more detail perhaps in the phenomenology of it, what you mean when you said you looked at her at 90 degrees and suddenly it hit you like, wow, like she was Vajrayogini for real. What, can you uh, unpack that a little bit, that experience and its implications? I don't know um, if I can, it's for something very hard to talk about. So that would have been, so today it's 2021 and that would have been the winter of 92. So that was getting on 28 uh, years ago. But um, well, it was another one of those otherworldly experiences that's happening in the world. I mean, she's a woman in the world, and there's a tent full of people there um, to vote, you know, um, devout people uh, listening to her talk. And uh, I don't know how to explain it. It's, it's all of a sudden, um, you know, there was a book one time about Swedenborg, uh, the mystic, and it was called The Presence of Other Worlds. And um, for me, it was just an encounter with that. All of a sudden, you know, it's just like sitting here talking with you and sunny uh, morning and Montana and the mountains here. And then all of a sudden, like, boom, you know, it was just the space and time and the whole dimension and everything was just different and uh, it was almost like all of that went away. And, um, but then it was present at the same time. <laughs> so it's um, something very powerful and intimate and having to do, you know, with my heart mind, you know, the Tibetans often and Asian people in general talk about the heart and mind aren't really separate, but, the, but separate from that analytical thinking 
mind. And in my case, that irritated mind uh, with things not going the way that I wanted them to go. And all of a sudden, all of that became totally irrelevant. And I was just um, under her influence and sway. And it was very powerful, very beautiful. Um, yeah, kind of like non-conceptual experience. I'm sure you've reflected on this, but by what means do you think that sort of experience occurs? By what means did she acquire that potency or did that potency emerge from her? Uh, some traditions talk about Shaktipat. Others might credit her level of realization or experience with the Vajrayogini uh, sadhana. Maybe she was in the practice at that moment to such a potent extent that it was transmissible in that way. Other people credit certain aspects of charisma or energetic openness in the body coming perhaps from energetic practices such as the Talung found in the six yogas, for example. Other people even talk about karmic connections, the karmic connections between the teacher and student, which are what give rise to that sort of an experience. I'm wondering if you've reflected, especially as a Lama yourself, on by what means she acquired that potency or that potency emerged in that moment between the two of you. Um, it seems like a, a lot of that's what you've just said is, is relevant. Um, and um, well, one time, a long, long time ago, um, I met some young people that were doing LSD in a beautiful old home in Pennsylvania. And they were, several of them were of the same family and they were quite a remarkable family. And I remember at breakfast or in the early morning, the, the next day talking with one of the young men and we were talking about a remarkable tree that was just outside the house. And he was going on and on about the tree and he was love of the tree and whatnot. And I said to him, um, what kind of tree is it? And he said, I don't know, I just love it. And so I think that I hadn't thought about that in a really long time, but um, his experience with that tree was a little bit um, like my experience. Like I've wondered about it and thought about it um, from time to time, but I've had um, other experiences like that. And I don't quite know how to explain them, um, uh, but, uh, but there's something that's like completely real and impactful and important. Um, to me and I'm inspired, uh, I was inspired by that experience. And then as well as we went on and got to know her more personally and more as a teacher, then one's also inspired by the depth of her knowledge, her skill in teaching and just the, her character and what a person she is. We were at some very fancy hotel in the south of France and one of the, like Cannes uh, maybe. Um, and um, and I'm always a little bit late and just out of it with time and space and whatnot anyway in the ordinary world. And so um, it's been a bit of a problem interfacing, you know, with the practical world. And so I'm always a bit like that. And, and I remember we sat down at one teaching or it was going to be an empowerment. And there were a lot of people there. And I noticed there were several people who had done three-year retreats and that were much senior to me. And... Um, I thought, you know, in my way of seeing the world. And uh, so I was there with Tiana and we had our robes on. And, and I remember, you know, my robes are kind of like messed up and I'm getting ready to take notes and I'm looking for my pen and my notebook. And she's beginning to speak from the throne. Well, Kondo uh, Rinpoche is, well, well, I'm doing my usual out of it thing. And, uh, and Tiana's always there early, ready to go and focused. And, um, 
and uh, and then I'm beside her, you know, uh, just wondering where the pen is and getting my cushion right and all of that. And I hear in the background, like subconsciously almost, I heard the word David, and I um, <clears throat> just um, ignored it because it's a common name. Um, it's not the people in France named David, um, and she certainly couldn't be talking to me. And what she said was, um, it came back to me. Um, you know, I, I woke up as a woman got present, and what she had said was, when a Rinpoche gives an empowerment, it's customary for her to ask a Lama to assist her in giving the empowerment, and so I want to ask Lama David, and so that's what she said, and then I thought, you know, whoever that guy is, fine, where's my pen, you know, and I've got the notebook here, and then, then I got adjusted and then looked at her finally, instead of looking around down like this for my, you know, pen and paper, notebook, whatever. And, and then she leaned forward and looked right at me and said, and so, you know, like that. So like looking right at me and then Deanna elbowed me. And so uh, that was just another little thing that happened with her. Um, that, and, so, and so then I did that and I can't remember what happened at all. It was all a blur or what empowerment it was or anything, but. Uh, um, but I was just in shock, you know, of all these other people that had done two, three year retreats, maybe, and had studied, and, you know, we were in France, and so they were French, and of course, fluent in French, and they knew Tibetan, and, you know, they're much, um, you know, in my mind, more qualified to do that kind of thing. So she couldn't possibly be, possibly be talking about me, but she was, you know. And then later on, she was one of, um, three or four, depending on how you count, but uh, very significant uh, Rinpoche's, you know, people of uh, very high regard in the Tibetan Buddhism that told me I should teach. But it took quite a while for me to actually do that. Let's talk about that journey from the point that we're at now in terms of your timeline, your biography to being encouraged to teach by three, four significant uh, lamas. Can you take us through that whole uh, tale? Well, at a certain point, we decided that it was time to, um, to come home, at least for a while. And I thought that we would be going back to France. I, I, neither of us, we haven't been back to France at all in the, all those years, um, but I love, France and the people there. And, and I wanted to say too, that the people in retreat, even though I was absolutely the village idiot, you know, and didn't know how to do anything and wasn't that much help in doing the rituals and the, you know, um, making tormas and things that the people were very compassionate to me, very kind to me, the people in France, in general, the people at the Dharma Center, and then the guys I was in retreat with were, uh, you know, really uh, patient and kind to me. So I really liked France. And then I had a strong connection with the Lamas and the lineage. And I thought, and while the I was doing that medical month intensive, Deanna was asked by the abbot to interpret for a Japanese Zen master doctor who was going to be teaching an acupuncture and shiatsu month-long intensive. And so Deanna became did that and was the interpreter for that. Um, and so she learned a lot about that uh, medical system. And um, so uh, our boys and I have been very grateful for all she learned about massage, for instance, <laughs> from that. But one time the, um, the abbot in the Tibetan, not the abbot and the Japanese doctor um, 
they each spoke kind of a broken, uh, funky English. And one time, I can't remember what the event was, but we were outside. It seemed like we were in some tent or something outside. And then I just interpreted for them. I think it was more like a party kind of situation or a picnic, something I interpreted in English, you know, so this broken English to that broken English. Um, and um, um, so then afterwards, the abbot told me that he thought that I should become an interpreter and he would teach me Tibetan and I should stay on and learn Tibetan. So I thought, wow, that sounds like a great idea. That actually never happened. But um, so that was a strong pull to come back to France. You know, I love that life of the, the ritual life, even though I'm not very good at <laughs> the, doing the ritual. So I just, something about that, from the, my very first encounter with it, I loved that. It's like when I'm, it was years later, just a few years ago, when I first started doing yoga, I can't, this is like amazing. I've done all kinds of different sports, grew up playing sports, and um, and this is amazing. This is wonderful. And and so, you know, I've just like gone into it then. Um, but we came back to America and then it was, that was rather shocking. So we came from the Dharma Center, kind of bucolic pastoral situation out in the country in Burgundy to Los Angeles. And I hadn't seen my mother in four years and she was living in Los Angeles. So we were like back to Los Angeles. And then we were staying with her and, and um, my stepfather was away. Uh, someone in, in the family was uh, was going through the dying process, uh, his uh, brother-in-law. So he was with his sister and brother-in-law actually back in Montana. And and so my mother was just there alone. So it was an ideal time for us to pop in and, and stay with her for a while. And we were all delighted to, uh, to be together. But at a certain point then we decided, well, we've got to um, get an apartment and, you know, get jobs and whatnot and i remember the first time deanna said to me you know we got to get jobs i was like jobs like what what what, what? you know like um and so um deanna's an academic and um uh, had always excelled in the academy and so um i've been to I visited UCLA and USC several times. I like to go to university libraries and I've been to different events there and I knew where they were and about. And then she met a woman, that a French woman who was a Buddhist who was in uh, graduate school at USC. And so Deanna interviewed with both places and decided to go to USC. So in no time flat, they wanted somebody to teach, you know, the first year French. And so she was like in grad school, like immediately and working. I don't know, maybe, I think maybe within a week or 10 days of, of uh, first meeting them, then she was in that program. So then she had a job and we got a little apartment. And um, so then it was on me, like, what am I going to do? You know, so I had a background in Greek and Latin, but that was all like 10 years before. So um, I didn't quite know what to do. And so then I just decided to follow up on the original idea that came to me in the dream and meditation and retreat that I should teach Tibetan. And so I called, contacted a local Dharma center and, um, and said, I'm just proposing to teach this like simple beginning, beginning class uh, on the Tibetan language. What do you think? And they checked with their mothership, as I say, and, and they thought that was a good idea. And so they put it in a little newsletter that was, um, I remember at the time, it was prepared on a typewriter, right? I think in 92, 93, maybe. Um, 
um, no, this, but anyway, somewhere right in there. And before, and, and the newsletter said that this guy, you know, um, is going to teach uh, an intro to Tibetan class. And they put that out in their newsletter that they mailed to the postal service, you know, this is before email. Um, and, and before the class started, the start date, people started calling me and saying, I want to study privately with you. Will, will you teach me? And so I did. So then it just started. And in a way, I thought um, the Dharma is too vast, too profound. Um, you know, I can't teach it. You know, I not, no, not me. <laughs> I couldn't. Um, and so teaching Tibetan, that's something I could do, you know. The, and so, um, so I was hiding out a little bit, I think, from myself, um, teaching Tibetan, even though I loved it and it's completely meaningful. And then, um, then I had a couple of remarkable encounters with uh, lamas that encouraged me in teaching the Tibetan uh, as well. Um, so I kept teaching Tibetan and getting a little bit better at it and starting to develop uh, materials. Um, Sarah Harding had done a th the very first ever three-year retreat at the same place at Kaguling in Burgundy there in France. And she was an American, is an American. And um, we started off with Tibetan by taking her correspondence course. And so she let me use that course as my textbook to teach my classes. And so I did that for about um, three and a half years. Um, and but but along the way, I started making my own handouts and just my own version of saying things. And she was teaching both the colloquial language and the classical language in the same course. And and my thing, my own past was with the classical languages of Greek and Latin. And from the very beginning, actually, the abbot in France told me, don't bother with spoken Tibetan, learn the classical language. And I had a deal. I was teaching a woman English and she was teaching me French you know, uh, on the lunch hour at the Dharma Center. And he walked in and saw us doing that one day and said, don't do that, you know, don't learn French. Um, just focus on classical Tibetan. So I had that going in my mind too, but I think it was just my natural inclination. <clears throat> um, so um, at the very, so after about a year of teaching, I had a group of people that were learning to read the script and, and the fundamentals of the grammar. And I decided to, um, to have a, a language seminar and we invited Sarah Harding, who is a Lama, to come and teach us the Heart Sutra. And so that was the first seminar that we did. And one of my friends who was a student, a lovely woman, said that she had just met this young Tibetan monk and we should have him be part of the sem seminar too. And I thought, great, let's do. And so we advertised that and told people about that. And, and then as the time for the event drew near, I said uh, something like, oh, of course, your young monk friend uh, speaks English, right? And she said, no, he doesn't speak English. And I thought, oh, great, what are we going to have him do? You know? And he wound up teaching calligraphy for us, very beautiful. And that was Anam Tupton Rinpoche, who at the time was called Tukul Tupton Rinpoche. So we developed a friendship there. We just loved him. Everybody loves him. And, um, and then some years went by. So he taught that one time for us. And then years went by. And meanwhile, as I teach, I'm learning a little bit more Tibetan. <clears throat> and one time someone said that they just met him. And I said, oh, I know him. We love him. We met him you know, years ago. He taught 
in this program with Sarah Harding for us. And he said, well, he likes you too. In fact, he said that he would do anything that you asked him to do. And my eyes got big and said, really? And so we invited him to come back and teach um, a Tibetan seminar. And so he wound up doing a whole series of Dharma teachings and Tibetan language teachings for us too. And this is while Tibetan Language Institute was just getting going, you know? And so he has been a major figure and now he's my uh, profound spiritual uh, mentor. Um, and then, um, so a couple of times over the years, he mentioned that I should be teaching the Dharma as well. And, um, and I said something like, yeah, maybe, you know, <laughs> like that. And, um, and then I met another, um, so one of the great things that happened in LA is all these amazing teachers. If you want to study the spiritual traditions of the world, all you have to do is stay in LA. You know, you can meet Native American teachers, you know, uh, ayahuasca masters, every type of yoga, every type of Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, Sufism, you know, it's all there. And one time, one of my students, this, my students always told me what was happening and turned me on to great things. And one of them said this, you know, this Rinpoche is coming that lots of people love. He's really amazing. You should go check it out. And so I said, okay. And, and we were taught that we should wear our, all of our Dharma garb when we go to uh, teachings. And that was just the habit that we had in France. And it was a little bit odd in, in LA. Um, and I just had the Zen though, um, when I showed up at this teaching and I was registering and then I put the Zen on right, getting ready to go in. And the woman said something like, for some reason, she said, are you a Lama? And I said, well, kind of, yeah. And she said, well, you don't have to pay, just go in. And, and I went in, I was sitting in the back of the hall and there were probably a hundred people there. And I was quite near the back of the hall and I was doing the regular thing, getting ready, getting set up. And Deanna was so involved in graduate school that uh, she didn't come to a lot of these teachings in LA that I came to, she came to some, but, uh, but not all. And I wasn't working that much, you know, teaching a couple people Tibetan and then I would just study all day long and a little bit of practice. And um, I had a little closet that I uh, practiced in, I remember. Um, and so I was sitting at this teaching, the very first teaching, and it was Lama Tarchan Rinpoche. And that was, it was at his center that the then Tukul Tupton Rinpoche, Anam Tupton Rinpoche, was living. And uh, I forget the chronology a little bit, but anyway, I, I was just sitting there getting ready to, to anonymously take this teaching and knew maybe one person in the entire hall. I'd never seen the Rinpoche before, didn't know anything, anyone. And I was just there being in, you know, like you would go to a film, you know, um, anonymously. Uh, ready. And, and then this young woman, you know, very young girl, like 18, 19, maybe 20 year old girl, all of a sudden appeared at my side and she said, uh, Rinpoche would like you to sit with him on the stage. And I said, no, there must be some mistake. Uh, thank you. Uh, go away, you know, <laughs> that's basically how I, I dealt with her. But I was polite with her, but said, this is, no, there must be a mistake. No, thank you. You know, bye-bye. Nice to, you know, nice to meet you or whatever like that. Then it was, I don't know, getting ready to go. And then, um, 
the next thing I knew she was appearing at my site again, you know, I, I probably was reading a book or the program or something. And, and, and then she said, No, he definitely wants you. And then I looked up and he was looking at me and pointed at me. And so, um, so I said, Okay. And so then I went up and just I just sat on the floor beside his throne. And then the interpreter was on the other side. And, and then he taught. And then uh, he just had me do that every time he came to town. And he he would come to LA, he would do a 10 day program twice, twice a year. And so I was, you know, that was kind of weird. And, and uh, I don't know if, uh, if uh, Anam Tupton had told him about me, but then how would he know that that was that guy? But anyway, that, that happened. And so um, that's Lama Tarchin Rinpoche. That yes. Uh -huh. What do you make of that? I don't know what to make of it still. The, uh, I don't think I know who I am, maybe. Uh, <laughs> and and um, so, so then on another time, on another occasion, years later, um, people announced that um, Tinley Norbu Rinpoche was going to be in town. And they said, it's kind of a secret teaching and we're not allowed to do any kind of promotion you know, via media at all. It's just word of mouth. And he's going to be teaching this one evening. And it has to be a hotel at the airport because he's flying out somewhere. And, um, and so you should come. And I knew about his books and knew about who he was lineage wise. And um, I have some um, uh, connection with the Dujom Rinpoche uh, lineage, I think. Um, and so I went to the teaching that he gave, and it was an outstanding teaching on the nature of mind, and it was just beautiful. It was a Dzogchen teaching, and it was uh, just seemed powerful and excellent. So I thought that I would um, pay my respects and offer him a kata and, you know, get in the long reception line after the teachings that always happened. And I just decided I wasn't his student. All these other people were, so I, it wouldn't be right for me to, like, go in front of any of them. So I just decided to wait for the end and be the last person in the line so everyone could have their time with him because he's their teacher and they don't get to spend that much time with him probably. And um, and so then I went up to the throne it, and everybody was gone, I think, out in other rooms and whatnot. And, um, and I spoke with, he speaks English, and I, um, I spoke with him and told him that I'd done a three-year retreat under Carlo Rinpoche and, and that I was teaching um, people uh, here in LA have been teaching uh, Tibetan for a few years. And, um, and then he just fixed me with a, a very uh, powerful gaze, one of those uh, encounters where again, um, time kind of stops and, uh, and he pointed at my face and we were only about two feet away because I was up at the throne. He was leaning forward and I was leaning forward and we're talking to each other and he said, you should teach the Dharma too. You should, you should teach the Dharma too. It'd be good for you and good for other people. And so then I just kind of left there, kind of stunned by that. It was almost like I was had become instantly drunk, or you know, I was just, uh, I was just stunned. And and then Kondra Rinpoche came back to L.A. after we met her in France, and. Um, and then in an interview, she told me that, uh, and it was before she established, she has, she has a beautiful center in Virginia now and really established Sangha. And, but this was before she had any of that. And 
it was her first trip to America, I believe, maybe her second. But um, so she was teaching in the Shambhala Center. She didn't have a center of her own anywhere. Um, and uh, so I have a lot of friends there. Um, and um, so we were talking with her and we like to talk with her just to get life advice, just general life advice and just to be with her and talk with her, it doesn't matter what. Um, I'm like that, you know, with uh, Anam Tupton or any one of the great masters, I don't care what they're doing, I just wanna be there. And Anam Tupton a few years ago told me, you don't have to come to any of my retreats anymore. You know, you keep coming to the retreats, but you don't need to do that. And, and I, because you've kept your own uh, work to do, you know, and, uh, and I said, but I want to, and he said, well, okay, you can come and we'll hang out, you know, so, the, uh, um, so I come as often as I can, <clears throat> um, but Kondo Rinpoche told me that she wanted me to teach, and she said, you did the three-year retreat, and you're still okay, <laughs> it was one of, the, one of the many things she said to me that I remembered, and she said, we want people to see you. We need people to see you. And I want you to, now I'm on this tour of America and I want you to teach in all the places that I teach. And my secretary here will organize that uh, trip for you. And I was just like, on the ego level, like, no way that that's not happening. You know, like, I'm not gonna teach at the Shambhala Center where people have been Buddhist for like 20 years and and when we came back from the retreat, we knew one Tibetan Buddhist in America. Um, and, uh, you know, we weren't part of any Sangha or system. And we were like, um, I don't know, this outliers or something. <clears throat> and anyway, I never did follow up on that. Um, what, what she said, you know, that she wanted me to teach like that. I just couldn't like imagine myself doing that. So no, nothing ever happened with that. But it was the same message again from a, from a high, very highly regarded person I certainly regard very highly. And she came back on one or two other occasions and, and um, we met, but I didn't, the first time she came, I didn't think that she would remember, you know, that we were the same people that she met from France because she meets hundreds of people. And she gave a teaching at the Shambhala Center. And then when she was leaving, her amazing, her remarkable sister was with her. And her sister's uh, brilliant and probably a tuku in her own right, I guess. Um, but uh, I just kind of stepped out into the hall as she was leaving and bowed and said hello. And she just looked kind of surprised and said, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know, because I last saw her in France. Oh, and a remarkable thing happened in France when we saw her as well. Um, and I said, um, um, our plans now are to go back to America. My mother lives in Los Angeles. We're going to go see my mother. Haven't seen her in four years and um, just kind of make a new start uh, back in America. And she immediately like sat up when, when I said that. And she said, um, it's not a good time to go to America right now. You should stay in France for about four more months you, until October. And it was April. And I'm not real good at math, but I quickly did like April, May, June, July, September, October. That's like not four months till October. You know, that's what my rational mind was doing with that. Um, you should stay. It's a good place to practice the Dharma in France. You should stay in France for four months until October, which is really more like six months. And, <clears throat> and so um, 
I think that was the interview when we were partying with Kondra Rinpoche after that first meeting and, and the couple of weeks of going to all the teachings with her around the um, coast of France there, south coast. And when we got back to the Dharma Center, we walked into the cafeteria and then there were some of our you know, friends there eating. And they said, did you hear what happened? And, um, and we said, no, what? And, um, and they said, there's a riot in Los Angeles. The town's burning down. So that was a big riot, the Rodney King um, infamous riots that were happening. And so I thought that was kind of interesting that a couple of days before that happened, um, Condor Rinpoche said, it's not a good time to go to LA is specifically what she said. And so then when that happened, I said, she knows what she's talking about. We'll stay four months until October. And so we did. Um, but that was just another remarkable, you know, like Gurdjieff has that book, uh, Meetings with Remarkable Men. So that's just another couple of stories of meeting with remarkable people and, and, and teachers. And so I'm a little bit thick headed. And, and so I didn't start teaching the Dharma at all well. And and actually, I've been kind of, I've not advertised myself very much as a teacher now that I am teaching. And, and then the Tibetan teaching has become all-consuming. You know, it's become uh, very much a full-time occupation for Deanna and me both. Um, but some, about, it must have been about 20 years ago because we were still in LA and we've been here 19 years now back in Montana. But Anam Tipton came... And in the beginning, we would go to lunch a lot. He would come to our house. And I've taught a couple of times at his house in different homes that he's had and like slept on his living room floor and things like that um, uh, before he had the center that he has in the Bay Area. Um, and one time he was with me and once again, he, he brought up this thing about me teaching the Dharma. And, and I remember we were sitting in my little office in our apartment and I said, well, I'm not just going to start teaching the Dharma and hang out my shingle, you know, as, uh, as Lama so-and-so or something. Um, you're going to have to, uh, like, write me a letter or something. And he said, okay, give me a pen, you know. And so he was at it. So we had our backs to each other. I remember I was doing something on the computer, and then he just sat over at my table where I would teach classes. Um, of two, three, one, two, three, four people in, in the little office there. And, and so he wrote this out on a legal pad in Tibetan. And you always want to keep put anything that he writes because it's so uh, beautiful. He's, he's very much a scholar and a poet. And his people, a lot of people that study with him don't know what a profound scholar he is. But he's published books in Tibet that have made waves in Tibet, you know, the, um, and he's a very profound scholar, actually. And so he's a beautiful master of uh, several arts, like uh, calligraphy and poetry and writing in general. And so he wrote this nice letter. And then he said, then come over here. You know, he like ordered me to come over to the table. And now we're going to translate it. And so, so he translated the letter. But the one thing that he said that was like the tipping point for me then. And so I would always say, just like before I went into retreat, I, I told the Lama that I'm totally unqualified. Like here are the list of prerequisites and I like am a zero, almost a zero. Maybe if you're real generous, I would score a 10% out of a hundred. Uh, so a complete fit failure, you know, like there's nothing there. I have no qualifications to go whatsoever. And he just kept saying to each thing that I would mention, as I guess I mentioned in our last talk that 
that's okay. You'll do a good retreat. And so I was like, checkmated. And so Anam Tupton checkmated. <laughs> so I said, well, I can't teach. I don't have a master's degree. You know, I don't have a PhD. I'm not a native, you know, I'm not a Tibetan, you know, I'm not a Tuku or reincarnate anybody, you know, I'm just like nobody, I can't uh, teach. And he said to me, there aren't any rules about who can help. And so that's what uh, checkmated me as it were, because I, I love people and life and I, and I recognize um, the suffering that we all have and I wanna help. Uh, and is there something I can do, some little thing I can do to help people that are suffering? And uh, so just telling them. So I like, I see myself, I'm a teacher, but I connect people up with people like Anam Tupton, Organ Chuang Rinpoche, who wrote the book, uh, Our Pristine Mind, which I think is one of the, perhaps the, the greatest uh, Dharma book I've ever read. Um, that's how it impacted me. And so I tell people about it and tell people about those other teachers. And then I would bring on him Tupton. I brought him to Montana to teach retreats. So he taught Tibetan for us. And one time he pointed, he taught, um, we read a series in Tibetan of pointing out instructions by the great um, Dzogchen masters, uh, such as Longchenpa, Jigme Lingpa, Mipam Rinpoche, and um, uh, the first uh, Dodrup Chen, the third Dodrup Chen, people like that. Um, we gathered the texts and uh, under his guidance, and he would teach that and taught the Heart Sutra uh, for us and things like that. So I like to see myself as somebody that's um, like everybody else. You know, the people I meet here are American people mostly. Um, but now with media, it's extended a little broader. But I, from the very beginning, when, when Deanna and I, before we did the retreat, we were one year at the Dharma Center and then we came home to prepare for doing the retreat because when we left America, I thought we were just leaving for a month <laughs> the first time. And so we still had affairs, you know, loose ends to tie up definitely. And we were supposed to do the preliminary practices and study Tibetan and then make the money necessary and all that. Um, but some people found out about us that have this tiny little publication and they wanted to interview us. And so they interviewed us. And I remember in the beginning, we just said that we're just like ordinary people, but we found something totally extraordinary, you know, that, that we just love and think is amazing. And so that's why we agreed to do the interview, not because we're, you know, special people, you know, that are coming back with some great message or something. But it is a great message in the sense of what we found. And so all these years later, that would have been about um, 86, 1986, 1987, maybe. Um, but I still feel the same way that I'm just quite a, an ordinary person. I'm just like everybody else, but I have found something amazing. So, I mean, even a small child, I say, could find gold, you know, like kids out playing, they can, they find amazing stuff all the time. So I feel like that. I'm like a little kid stumbling around and just like playing, but I found something amazing. And so then it's helped me so much. You know, so it's been really healing and helpful for me. And we're going through this difficult time, like now with COVID, everything's intensified. But for me, it just intensifies the truth of the teachings of the spiritual tradition. And then the one that I know about is Buddhism, the teaching of the Buddha. And we just have to start with the fact, the first noble truth is there is this thing suffering. And then my ego is like, oh, do we really have to talk about that? You know, can't we talk about rainbows and visions and other worlds and things like that? Uh, well, no, you know, we have to get practical. So it's just like the old medical model, you know, you 
something's not right. So you see the doctor, and then the doctor just happens to have medicine. And they usually call the Buddha, the, the Buddha is called in the text, the great physician. And that's how I see it. The Buddha has the medicine, and there's definitely something wrong. You know, we have this saying in America, Houston, we have a problem, right, from that space flight where things went wrong. And, and we just have, definitely have a problem. And then here's some medicine that can really help, you know, so this has helped me. So I'm, I'm not putting myself forward as some wise person that wants to, you know, bestow, you know, healing and wisdom on others and follow me, you know, um, but more, more like the person that's, um, that found something really great, you know, like, look, at, it's just like when you're with a friend, maybe shopping in a foreign country market or something, and you come upon something extraordinary, and maybe it's a food, and you eat it, and go like, whoa, this is amazing, you got to try this, you know, like, at one time when I was young, I'd never eaten an avocado, you know, living in Montana, and um, when I grew up, it was before 747s, and we weren't getting you know, kiwis from New Zealand, you know, uh, at, in the market every day and whatnot as we are now. Um, and I remember driving down the street with my friend and he said something about avocados. And I said, I've never eaten an avocado. And he just did an immediate U-turn in the car and took me back to the market. And we went into this, you know, grocery store and, and bought an avocado. And then I ate an avocado and I was like, wow, you know? So that's kind of how I feel. Uh, about the Dharma and the teachings, and then people should know about, so these people are doctors of the spirit, you know, the, these great masters, and then the books, I, I, um, I'm kind of buried in, in books, um, I have a lot of books, a lot of Dharma books, and, and, and one of my great masters, Bokar Rinpoche, who was the regent of Kalu Rinpoche, I had many, many empowerments from him, as Deanna did. And then one time after we were in LA and I was teaching for about three years, he sent out a letter saying he was going to give the, the whole cycle of empowerments, many dozen empowerments at Kalarimpache Center in India and in Sonada near Darjeeling. And he invited all of us who had done the retreat. We were pretty much under his aegis because he gave those, us those empowerments on Kalarimpache's behalf. And then we were in retreat when Kalarimpache passed away in 89. So Bokar Rinpoche became our root master. And I love Bokar Rinpoche. And so then I actually went to India for all those empowerments and then went to his center and so spent some time with him. And then some of us who had done that first three-year retreat were thinking that we would do... Um, the uh, this upcoming another three-year retreat at the same place in France and I went to him and told him my plan I said um, so Deanna's all set up you know so she has a job we have a little car we have a little apartment she's totally focused on this graduate program and you know that'll be about a decade it'll be several years yet and I've been teaching Tibetan for three years so that was my weak link I thought in the in my retreat experiences I just wanted to learn Tibetan better and understand what I'm saying when I'm reciting and understand the commentaries, read the commentaries on the tantric text. Um, a lot of those I had uh, access to in French and English, so that was wonderful. Uh, but I, you know, wanted the direct encounter uh, with the text and the teachings. But now I studied Tibetan for three years in the process of teaching it for three years. And Diana was all set up. And so I asked Bokar Rinpoche, I don't know what to do. So I've got this thing going where I'm teaching Tibetan, but then I'm also really drawn to do another three-year retreat. And what do you think I should do? 
And he came and visited us numerous times while we were in the retreat. So he knew me and, um, you know, we talked on a number of occasions and there's a couple of stories there, but, but he told me, I, he thought that I should stay in America and teach Tibetan. So that's, uh, so that's what I did at that point. So, so normally I'm pretty good. You know, I try to take the advice of, um, you know, of, of the llamas that they give me, but, but I, but I was just, um, I've, um, been slow in, 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 in coming to teach the Dharma. Um, but then I've been doing a little, uh, of it locally. And, and now, um, now that we have zoom, I'm, I'm teaching, um, uh, uh, a few people, uh, very kind and patient people. Um, and I guess I've been doing that for 10 years in Missoula. So Adam Tipton told me that I should found a Sangha, make it a nonprofit, give it a name. And, and he said, um, I think he said to me, do you want a Sanskrit name or do you want a, um, I don't know, maybe English or Tibetan name? And, and, and um, so I said a Sanskrit name. And then he actually proposed a Sanskrit name. And then I said, I changed my mind. I, I just, um, and it was kind of a generic name that he came up with that was beautiful and profound. I don't remember what it is right now, what it was, but um, um, I just decided to, um, there's something about the place where we are and people call Montana big sky country now. And then in Zen, there's actually the notion of big sky mind. They use that expression. And, um, and then throughout the Tibetan teachings and Dzogchen teachings, the sky and space is constantly referred to. Um, the, um, so anyway, um, I, I just came up with that, um, big sky mind. And so the it has different resonances, you know, we can kind of refer to people locally here in Montana, but then also the um, a reference to, you know, our true nature, our Buddha nature is being infinite like the sky and not really something to reify. Uh, David, I know that on this occasion, our time is shorter than usual and you have another appointment. So I think, unfortunately, we'll have to end it there. We've also, we're discussing perhaps having a third installment, and I think that would be very interesting. Um, I have many, many more questions, actually, some about the Tibetan language itself and the manner in which you teach, uh, and some questions about, you know, all, from all, uh, to draw on your experience of having taught that for so long, uh, and also other questions about your life and practice in this tradition. So perhaps a third episode will be coming. Okay, I would like that. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Once again, Lama David Curtis, thank you very much. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure, Steve. Thank you, too. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.